Good morning, saints of Riverstone. That sounds a little strange calling you saints, but it's the truth, isn't it? It's what God says of us, that we are his saints. Now let me show you the sinners of the church. Somewhere <laughs> we have the sinners. I mean that lightheartedly. These are your elders. Uh, sometimes we, we get questions, well, who are the elders of the church? And I would first say, well, go look at the website because here are the pictures. Uh, but I want to put these up here because uh, first to recognize their faces, but then to ask you a question. Uh, these are the ones that you have selected to lead this church. And when you look at the pictures, you know that we're all different. Um, there are a couple of old guys up there. In fact, more than one. And then we got some young guys up there. More than one. We have guys in their 20s, early 30s, all the way into their 70s on our church board. We have uh, men up here who uh, remember when there was something called a hymn book. And we used to hold it in our hands and follow the little white dots up and down on the line. And at that time, drums were of Satan and they weren't in the church. And uh, on the other hand, you have people up here who that's all they've ever known uh, is a drum in a church and electrified instruments and no piano uh, anymore. We come with a lot of range of experience, a lot of different spiritual backgrounds. And when you look at these men up here, these are your elders. Do we always get uh, to the same, I mean, I mean, do we always agree on everything? Absolutely not. We have really good discussions at our elder meetings sometimes. But you know what? We love each other. We work together and we are working together to shepherd the flock that is here in Riverstone. Now, the question that comes up is, okay, um, what are they supposed to be doing? So I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at a passage of, of Scripture that gives us the details of what an elder is supposed to be and what he's supposed to be doing. Now, while the elders are rather passing out the Bibles, let me just say this. I've worked with elders and church leaders almost all of my life. I grew up, my dad was a pastor, um, so I've been in the church all my life. Uh, then I was a pastor, so I've been in the church for a long time. In the last almost 25 years now, I've been at Cairn University teaching pastors how to pastor. Uh, I've been around churches and I've been around elders. And one thing I want to say about our elder board, you have a strong board. You have a good group of, of elders, and they are here. They humbly desire uh, to provide care for the members of Riverstone Congregation. They're good men. So Austin asked me to preach this passage a while back, and I am excited to be able to do that with you. Um, we have a lot to cover, and we won't even get finished. So I have 40 minutes to give you 45 hours. Well, not quite that much, but we, we won't take all of that long. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. I'm going to use a different translation this morning than we're used to. We usually use the New American Standard here. Um, I have the ESV up here, 
And I've also put some highlighting up so that we can see on, on the screen what's going on. So let's read it together. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, as you've gone through, you've seen I put some red letters up there. There are three groups of people who are addressed uh, in this text. And first, it, it's, it's directed to church elders, and the first four verses are about church elders. So you might be sitting here right now thinking, well, why should I even listen? I'm not a church elder. Let the church elders listen to what church elders are supposed to be doing, but it's not for me. Well, let, let me say a few things about that. This passage is for you. Um, let me ask you some questions. Do you know what to look for in an elder when it comes time for our annual meeting? Do you know what God is looking for in an elder as we get prepared for the next season of ministry? Ooh, well, maybe not. Could the description of elders in this passage have anything to do with anyone who is a servant, a leader in the church here at Riverstone? Well, maybe those questions would direct us and say, well, maybe there is something here for this passage. Now, I know some of you are never going to be elders. It's impossible. Well, yes, it is impossible. Um, scripture says that the office of an elder is reserved for men. I know that's unpopular in our culture. Can women be leaders in a church? Absolutely. We have lots of them. Are women gifted to do ministry? And I would say yes, yes, and yes. Yes, again, they are gifted. Are they valuable members of the body of Christ? And let me turn around. Are you valuable members of the body of Christ? Absolutely, positively, you betcha. That's true. Are you gifted to do the ministry? Yes, you are. Can you be an elder? No. Simply the teaching of Scripture. So God has assigned different roles for men and women in the church. And as our church, uh, if you looked at our constitution, you realize that we are a church that holds to what we call a complementarian position. That is, that men and women are created equal in the sight of God, but that we have different roles assigned to us in the home and in the church. So, ladies, sorry, but you can still listen, because if you're a leader or anybody here, there's something here for you. And then I would address the men and say, well, being a male is not the only qualification uh, for being an elder in the church. Some of you may never want to be an elder. <sighs> Sigh, it's okay. 
Some of you may not be gifted to be an elder. You don't need to be. Some of you may not be qualified to be an elder. That's all right. God has other ministries involved for you. So there's something for everybody to do in our church, and there's something for everybody that comes out of this passage. Why should we pay attention? So we could know what to look for in our leaders. Simple as that. So we're going to talk about elders. That's where the majority of the time will be. We're going to talk about this, uh, this little group called Younger. They don't get much. Um, and we'll have to discern, well, who is he even talking about? And then the last group here, the third group, group is all of you. Are you included? You got it. All of us. He's going to include us in that. And so we have this passage that's addressed specifically to three different groups, but there's something here for all of us. Now, when we get into the passage, I, I want to give you a little bit of background that would be helpful to understand. And the first is just the structure of the New Testament church. It would be easy for us to, to look around here at Riverstone and say, well, this is how the church must have been forever and ever Amen. You know, it's got a building, it's got pastors, it's got pews, it's got peoples. Well, we don't have pews, we got chairs, we, you know, we got music. We have all that sort of stuff. And, and we become accustomed to sort of our Western way of doing church. But we have to put our minds back to the time of Peter and ask, what was the church like then? Because this is who he addresses. So when we, we do that, we, we realize that the, the church is not a building. It's composed of people. And it doesn't matter where they meet because the building is not the church. It's just a facility that allows us to meet together in one place. It's a tool of ministry. It's not something to be worshipped. It's just something that we use to help us facilitate the work that God has given us to do. Now, this is a little bit aside, but I have a map up here somewhere, it's coming up, of, of, of uh, Asia Minor. And if you remember in, in chapter one, Peter talked about this Asia, and then he has this word over here, Cappadocia. That's one of the places it was, it was. So all of that that he's addressing is up here around Turkey. Now, I want you to see where people lived in Cappadocia. This is a place where Christians were, where they were being persecuted, and they went to get away from it. All right, can we have the next slide? Isn't that exciting? Little holes cut into rocks. You don't see a big building with a steeple. You don't see a big auditorium. It was small. My wife got to go there years ago, and she remembers huddling in one of these little places as they sang Amazing Grace, little cave. So I'm just trying to give you a, a picture that we, we have to get away from thinking about Riverstone and the big picture, but we have to start thinking about, well, what is, people, what is Peter doing here? So now that we have this, this in our, our mind, we, we understand that they were smaller groups meeting wherever they could, and there was an elder or plurality of elders that was there to help them through whatever was going on in their lives. At this point, there was not a formalized structure for the local church, as you can see. <laughs> Just something they were meeting wherever they could. So I want you to think about the church at this time as small groups meeting in whatever space was available under the spiritual care of qualified men. 
And now we come back to something that we've already learned in the book. They were suffering. The people were suffering. They were being persecuted because of their faith. And Peter is addressing these elders and encouraging them and saying, elders, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take care of this group of people. Now, Austin did a good job last week. I hope you were here or you hope you had an opportunity to listen to it on, online, that, that he was talking about suffering and proper response to suffering. Did a great job. And, and Shepherd, he has a shepherd's heart in all of this. He's helping us to walk through times of difficulty and times of, of trial. Suffering people need somebody to walk beside them for strength and encouragement. And so Peter is addressing these elders during a time of suffering. They need guidance, they need care, and then this is where our passage picks up. Suffering believers need humble leaders who will walk with them as shepherds. That is what's going on in this passage. So who are the elders? Recognized men appointed to look after the spiritual welfare of believers. And when we start to think about elders, it's not about gray hair. Now, I'm one of the older ones on our board, and I have a little of that gray hair, but I've had it since I was 40, so it doesn't really matter. But the point that I want to make is it's not necessarily about older, older, older men. There are scholars who, who look at this, and when Peter wrote this book, he was probably about 50 years old. That's not very old. I, I passed that mark quite a while back. And it looks younger and younger all the time, just kids. You know? Peter was not old when he wrote this, but he's talking about elders who may not necessarily be old, but they are mature in faith. They have strength of character and maturity in the things of the Lord so that they can lead others as they go through their trials of life. So who are the elders? They are the spiritual leaders. Now, Peter's going to do something here in our, our text that's really interesting. So he says, so I exhort the elders, presbyteros. Anybody heard the word Presbyterian somewhere? That's where that word comes from. So I exhort the elders among you. I stopped. There's a little literary device here that Peter uses. There's a big term for it, but let's just use the word speed bump. That's easier to remember. So if I were to, you were to discipline one of your kids, I, I, your kids are perfect, I know. They, they never need that, but mine did. And so here we, here we go. Uh, Johnny, I command you. Or Johnny, here's what I want you to do. And so what's little Johnny doing? Okay, what, what's, what's going to happen here? And he says, I'm your father. I'm older than you. I'm wiser than you. I pay the bills around here. I'm a lot farther down the road than you. And Johnny's just shaking. When's he going to get to the command? And that's what Peter is doing here. It's this little speed bump to slow us down and to make us think and anticipate what he's going to say. So what he does is he gives us three statements in this speed bump about his qualifications and why they should listen to him. So let's look at them. He says, first, I'm a fellow elder. 
What we want to do in all of these is think behind the scenes. Why would he use these words? Why would he say these words to a group of suffering people? He says, I am a fellow elder. He's an elder among other elders. He's one of them. He doesn't elevate himself with this term. He is one among them. He says, look, we're in this together. I know what you're facing because I faced it myself. Just as these churches was, were, safe, were suffering, so too Peter. Just as these elders were helping their believer groups to remain strong in the faith, so too Peter. I'm in this with you. Isn't that encouraging? When we hear something like that, I, yeah, I've been there too. And the second thing he says, he says, I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And so Peter, you think about it, he followed Christ around wherever he went for the three years of his ministry. He was an eyewitness to the sufferings that Jesus had all of those three years. <clears throat> he was there for the resurrection. He was there for the appearances. He was there for the, uh, for the ascension. And so the elders of the diaspora did not have this privilege. If we go back to the first part of Peter chapter 1, Peter says to him and dresses them, you have not seen him, but love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And Peter's saying, you've never seen this guy. I have. I've seen him. Why is that important as we go through here? Look, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. I saw his trials. I saw his sufferings. I was in the courtyard after his, at his trial. I was in Jerusalem when the rock split and the curtain was torn in two. I was there in Jerusalem when he was crucified. I denied him three times. And he restored me to fellowship and service. Do not give up hope because Jesus has suffered and he has been raised to life and I saw it. Faith is grounded in fact. That's what Peter's saying. Your faith in Christ is not in vain. I saw it. I'm a witness to what was going on. And then he describes the future glory. He says that the term glory is, is found here. We're back on whatever verse. But we, we're, we saw his glory is found in the book ten times and generally first refers to the second coming of Christ. And, and when you start looking at, at that, Peter's saying, look, I, we're going to share together in the glory that is to come. And the, the logic is something like this. Christ is going to return, and on that day, everything's going to be made right. His coming is going to provide hope to endure during these times of suffering. And so Peter is pronouncing hope, and he's encouraged them to hold on. Christ's return will bring reward and glory. But I spent a lot of time on a speed bump, didn't I? But that's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to just make us, make us think a little bit about, hey, we're in this together. That's good. I saw it. I know it's true. And we have something waiting for us at the end that's beautiful. Now, little Johnny's still standing there, shifting from foot to foot. 
wondering, okay, when is the command going to come? What's the exhortation all about? And, and so then Peter says this, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And that's the main clause of this set of verses. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. We run into a metaphor here that is common throughout the Bible. Sheep shepherds referred to over 400 times in scripture. Shepherd the flock. But you think about a metaphor works because it is comparing one thing to another. It's comparing something that we know about with something that we might not know quite as much about. And we make this analogy, this, this metaphor between it. Many of the biblical metaphors are things that, we, that people intuitively understand because they lived in that culture and they knew what that was like. Um, but I would suspect that many of you have never grown up in a rural part of our country. Um, if suburbia has been your home, sheep have not been part of your life except maybe at a petting zoo or going through the, the fair up here. Um, you, you might not understand the metaphor simply because we haven't had exposure to it. We don't live with it every day. But we have this beautiful metaphor that's not totally clear here in the Burbs. We don't know it because we don't live it. Now, on the other hand, I got to live in rural America most of my life. I, I grew up there. Um, we had folks in our church who had sheep. So I know a little bit about the metaphor and it makes sense to me. I've had my hands uh, in their wool. I've heard their bleeding. I've seen newborn lambs. I've heard shepherds talk about their stupid behavior uh, and all that goes along with it. And so, you know, I, I have a feel for it. I, I, I wish that books had scratch and sniff or something, you know, you could really get the feel for what sheep are all about, but that's, that's not here. But we have to understand, again, that, that shepherds, they, they weren't in fenced-in enclosures. They, they were free to wander, but with a shepherd. They, they went wherever they wanted to. They were not fenced-in and just left to themselves. They were dependent on shepherds for everything. They had to protect them. They had to take them to good grazing. They had to water, bring water for them. They had to give shelter to them. They had to protect them from energy, in, uh, injuries. And, and so sheep would be lost without a shepherd. Sheep are dependent creatures. There's something called founding. They, they'll roll themselves upside down and wiggle their legs like this. And they're so stupid they can't get even back on their feet. They'll die. That's sort of what you get into with, with these, these critters. And so it's probably a good analogy uh, for us. But what is Peter, what's Peter saying? I want you to shepherd the flock that is among you. What is an elder supposed to do? Shepherd the flock. Now I teach a course at uh, Cairn University called Pastoral Care and Leadership and I devote three class periods to what it means to be a shepherd kind of parse out that metaphor. I don't have three days uh, here. So let me give you a short summary with some word pairs. I robbed them from a friend, he won't mind. Um, but they're, they're great word pairs. Actually, they come from the Bible. They're found in Ezekiel uh, 28. We'll get there later on. 
But the, here are my pairs, feeder, sustainer. Feeder, sustainer. In other words, shepherds know what is good, where the good food is, and they take the, the flock to food and water. They feed them. That's the analogy. They are leader guides. They know the way, and they lead the sheep. They are seeker gatherers. They know the sheep, and when they wander off, they go in and find them. They're healer caregivers. They know the condition of the sheep and give care as needed. And then they are guardian protectors. They know the sheep are vulnerable, and they diligently seek after them. Now, all of these items are clear from Scripture. They are, are, are clear from even Jesus' ministry. They're clear from all kinds of places. But let me just bring a metaphor to your mind. Do you remember a psalm that goes like this? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then it goes through, I shall not want for what? He leads me, he guides me, he protects me. All of them, all those metaphors are found in Psalm 23. Or you, you think about Jesus when he talks about himself in John 10. I am the good shepherd, he said. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Now that's sacrifice. That's care and concern. But now we come to a passage that I, I will have it up here. Um, but Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, is one of the most powerful passages on being a shepherd that we'll ever find. But it's not a positive passage, it's a negative passage. Because God is going to talk about what his shepherds were not doing and why he would bring discipline upon them. So let's read it. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. We're talking about the leaders, talking about the priests and, and others in their, in their midst. Prophesy, say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Hmm. Does that sound like feeding somewhere? The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The, last, the lost you have not sought and with force bound up. And strayed you have brought, I've got lost with brass and harshness you have ruled them. So they are scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep are scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep are scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely my sheep... Because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there is no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall be shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Again, you can go through that passage and see those pairs of words that are in there. Now, maybe that helps a little bit. Who were the elders? We spent a long time here. 
not just a group of guys, but they're mature men who want to shepherd the flock. They feed, they lead, they seek, they heal, they guard. And what I hope is becoming clear as, as we read through these passages and talk is that being an elder is not about having a title. It's not about having a seat on the church board. It's not primary, primarily this, this office or a position, but it's a calling to oversee the spiritual care of people. And so understanding that metaphor brings us back to Peter's use of it. Peter suffered, his audience suffered for the sake of Christ, and those who were suffering needed humble leaders to walk with them through suffering. Peter is essentially saying here, look, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, your folks are hurting, take care of them. That's the essence of what he's doing, take care of them. However, he doesn't want us to become like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34. We just read that passage. So if, if we go past that, now he begins to say, okay, what are the motivations for being a shepherd? What should drive you? What should we look for in someone who wants to be an elder of a church? All right, let's begin. Not, he has this, this series of motivations, and it has this not that, but this. It's a series of three as he goes through. The elders are to exercise oversight with the proper motivation, not that, but this. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Wow. Being an elder means that you're desiring to follow God and not man. Being an elder must be a want to and not a have to. It's not something that's going to be forced upon you. No one is required to be an elder. In fact, if you have no godly desire to be an elder, that's okay. You don't need to be one. But it is a noble desire to desire to be an elder of a church. But it's not the office, it's not the position, it's not the title, it's the work itself that you desire. Shepherd the flock. Elders serve because they want to serve Christ in his body, and that is the bottom line. We select elders not because they're good businessmen, not because we twisted an arm or two, not because we cannot find somebody else, not because of guilt tripping, not because we want them to become more active in the church, not because of popularity or wealth. We select men who are serving the Lord already and desire to take on the role of an overseer. The second, not that but this, not for shameful gain. What is the, the reward of an elder? <laughs> well done, good and faithful servant. Elders are asked to feed the flock, not fleece the flock. Money is not a godly motivation. True shepherds are not hirelings. Now I need to nuance this just a little bit. 
If you look at the Greek word here, it's only used here. And translators are kind of struggling with how to even translate it. So I got four or five translations here, but basically what it comes down to this, it's fondness for dishonest gain. It's a negative. The translations all pick up the idea that money through dishonesty is not something that should be part of an elder's life. Now I could easily get sidetracked here given the abuses that we've seen in some very highly visible ministries, but I defer, you've seen enough financial scandals for yourself. It is good and right to pay those who carefully serve us. The Apostle Paul says that. Austin and Jeremy, those guys, they put in a lot, a lot of hours. It's okay to pay them. They are our paid elders, and rightfully so. They serve us well, we try to compensate them well but knowing both that they're not in it for the paycheck. They're like any of the rest of us. We have to earn a living and put groceries on the table and pay the mortgage and, and all the rest, but that's not why they're here. They are here to serve Christ and his body. And the paycheck is a bonus. The rest of the elders, the pictures that we have up are unpaid. As someone once quipped about elders, we're good for nothing. It's amazing. Your elders are not doing this for riches, but out of love for Christ and this family that he has given to us. The next, not this, but this, being an elder is not about gaining power. It's not about gaining power, but being an example. We all know that power is seductive. We see it all the time. Power is something that leaders have and it must be used wisely because it's delegated from God, but it's for the good of the group and not for the good of the individual. I could go on and on with that one. The abuse of power has ruined many, many ministries when we have power-hungry pastors, elders, preachers, evangelists, whatever, seeking to build an, an, a personal empire through domination. It's not good. What a mess we have seen in the Christian world over abuse of power. Mars Hill Church, maybe that's one you're familiar with not too long ago in Seattle. A beacon work imploded through the pastor's abuse of power. And I could multiply the examples. Instead, we look to Christ. We look to Christ. We talk about the motivations, not under compulsion. Was Christ under compulsion to come? For God so loved the world did he do it for shameful gain? No, not at all, not domineering. He, he goes through this. He, he talks about to his disciples who were thinking about power. That's what we want in ministry is power. And Jesus said, you know, that's the way the Gentiles operate. That's not the way that you're going to operate. The one who is the greatest must be the one who is servant of all. That's Mark chapter 10. And then lastly, in verse 4, he says, elders are to serve under the authority and example of Christ. They will be rewarded. Don't have time to go into all the crowns and all that, what that means. But simply to say this, there's a reward for those who serve faithfully as elders. And the crown probably is eternal life. It is that time that we have with him. It is that well done, good and faithful servant. So let's recap. You ready? I won't give a quiz, but we'll, we'll do it here. What are the motivations for elders? What are we looking for when we 
We want to put, uh, have men become elders of our church. Elders serve willingly because they desire to serve Christ and his body. Elders serve eagerly, not for money. Elders serve humbly by responsibly serving or exercising God-delegated authority. And elders serve under the authority and example of Christ, and they will be rewarded. That's exciting. And they're looking at the clock, and he's got seven minutes, and he's only got one verse yet. And I got how long? <laughs> we have a lot to, to cover here. Let's go on to the next section. The younger, who are they? We don't know. That's the simplest answer. Lots of speculation on it. Again, most of the time when we find the word younger in the New Testament, what we have is an adjective that goes with it. Younger men, younger women, younger something. You know, they, they go together. But uh, not here. We, we just have the younger. And probably the, the, the best explanation of this is to think of those who are younger or those who are younger in their spiritual faith. And that the elders are those who are more mature in their faith, the younger are those who are less mature in their faith. And so what we would come down to in the end is, Anybody who's not an elder <laughs> might be considered a younger. And then that would go along with the next portion of our text where he's, he's talking uh, about, um, where am I at, all of you? The younger, what are they supposed to do? They are to be in submission. Now, aren't you, you love that word? Submission, we've talked about it enough times in Peter to, to sort of make, make it stick. It's, it's a word submit or submission is a difficult word to stomach. But um, I just want to say this before I go off on a rant, is that submission never means submitting to abuse. It never means submitting to abuse. If elders are abusive, they need to be disciplined according to the guidelines of Scripture. An elder, an elder who bullies, bullies is not a spiritually healthy dude. A pastor who is cruel or dishonest is not a shepherd, as God would have you. They need to be examples to the flock. Now, that's not the kind of leadership we have here. That's not the kind of leadership that we'll tolerate here. But we have to be aware of it, that all of us have this propensity to get trapped with uh, the seduction of power. All right, so let's go to, on to the all of you. Are you ready now? All of this time, I haven't built an elder. Now we get to the all of you. All of you. Here we go. If you are an elder, clothe yourself with a humility. If you are younger, clothe yourself with a humility. If you are a member of the congregation, then clothe yourself with humility. We really don't want to talk about humility. It's something that we do talk about, but we do little with. It was not a popular idea in the Roman times. It's not a popular idea in our times as well. But there's, a, there's something where he says that, look, if you're humble, then God's for you. If you're not humble, then there's opposition from God. I, I don't recommend pride. God has a way of humbling those who lift and exalt themselves up. Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind and a few others in Scripture. God gives grace to the humble. You ever ask yourself the question, but what does humility look like? That's a good question. How about Romans chapter 12, verse 6? There's, a, there's one that we could look at, and, and if we draw the principles out without actually, I don't think I have it up there, but uh, we treat all people regardless of race, nationality, class, age, occupation, intellect, accomplishments, wealth, even their debauchery. 
with respect and dignity. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. We're humble when we you know, show that kind of respect to those who live at the margins of life, the lowest in our status and of our communities. We honor one another as others are more important than ourselves. There's a whole study on humility that we don't have time for. Maybe next week somebody will pick it up and do a little bit more with it. It's doing menial tasks that are below your station in life. You think, where'd that one come from? Well, I remember Jesus washed feet. There's something about humility that's it's unpleasant for us. Dallas Willard has a, a definition that I found years ago, and I, I found helpful just to think about it. He says, humility, in humility, we refrain from pretending what we are, we are for, excuse me, we refrain from pretending we are what we know we are not, from presuming a favorable position for ourselves in any respect, and from pushing or trying to override the will of others in our context. That's a pretty powerful definition. I don't know if I have it up there. No. Who's our greatest example of humility? Question, Christ. Would that come to mind? Philippians 2. What did he do? He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. That's Christ. Or we look at John 13, where he washed feet. He did something that nobody expected, and he shouldn't have done because of his station as teacher. So there's so many verses here. I gotta stop, but let's recap some things and come back and look at them. All right, let's, what about elders? If you're an elder here, or thinking about an elder, wanting to be an elder, then what are your proper motives? Because you want to. Because that's a calling of God upon your life, not because of a have to. It's not for money, it's not for power. It's remembering that you are under the watchful eye of the chief shepherd who will reward you when he comes. That's a word to my heart. I'm an elder here at, at Riverstone, among these guys up here. We have a calling. We shepherd the flock. But you know what? Austin and Jeremy are shepherds, but there's no way in the world that they can do all the shepherding in a congregation this size. Remember what I talked about, those little churches? And here we are with 500 people, usually on a Sunday morning. Austin and Jeremy cannot shepherd everyone. Austin cannot do every wedding. He cannot visit everyone with illness. He cannot counsel every broken heart. He cannot attend every meeting. He cannot be everyone's close friend. He cannot answer every phone call. He cannot respond to every email. Austin must guard his priorities and do the things he must do as a senior leader in training the body to do the work of the ministry. And Jeremy is the same. Sometimes we have just unrealistic expectations of what our pastors can do. I speak from one who was a pastor for 20 some years. We only have so much time. We only have so much energy. The rest of the lay elders, as we saw the pictures up there, we try to take up pieces of that. And, and we try to shepherd those that we can as, as uh, time and inclination allow. But even if we did all of our elders 
And even if we were to hire two full-time pastors tomorrow, we still couldn't do all the shepherding that's needed in this body. It's impossible. And that's where every member must realize that you are a minister. There's where part of this comes through. Aren't the qualifications that we talked about here about elders, they're just people who are following Christ. That's it. You don't have to have a title to act like a shepherd. You can do it. You can pray with somebody. You can read the scripture with somebody. You can visit somebody. Doesn't take a senior pastor to pray. Doesn't take a senior pastor to visit. I know that that's our expectation, but it's unrealistic. It, we just cannot do, do everything. So we all can be, participate in the shepherding ministry and role of the church. You see somebody hurting in the congregation? Just get next to them, pray with them. Reach out to them. Again, you don't have to say, oh, pastor, um, so-and-so is hurting. Could you go see them? Why don't you go see them? It's okay. You're a member of the body of Christ. I just called you saints somewhere along the line in this, in this message. And the last thing is all of us need to humble ourselves. We need to live humbly before the Lord and with one another. It's God's will for each one of us. So what's the bottom line of all of this? Elders must humbly provide spiritual care for the membership of the church. That's our job. With motives and character that stimulate the members to humbly follow their example. We can do that. Elders are men who lead, feed, know, lead, feed, guide, and protect the flock under the delegated authority of Christ. So what is an elder? Now you know. This is what we're looking for. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace upon us. Thank you for the privilege of just leading through this passage. We thank you for the men that you have given to us in our church. Men who have a desire to serve others. Men who are not in it for money or for power. The men who just simply love you and love this flock and want to shepherd as best they can. Protect us from the evil one. Give us grace and strength to live humbly with one another as we follow you, our chief shepherd. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>